Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Svars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And this week, we are featuring an extraordinary author. I'm really looking forward to talking about her. And she's one that I hope um, is totally new to our audiences. I um, had a hard time kind of tracking her and her information down, just sort of in the in the public sphere. But we're going to be featuring Jessie Redmond Fawcett, who was an incredibly influential author in the Harlem Renaissance. So I was inspired by my research last week for um, Alan Locke and figured we could kind of continue in that in our celebration of Black History Month uh, by focusing on a, a woman who I think and many people think have kind of been lost to history and she deserves much more recognition to her extraordinary legacy. So I'm really excited to uh, bring her to all of you this week. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. I'm excited to hear all about her life. This week's news article, Stephanie, made me very excited because I feel like it's a crossover between science and literature, which is something I'm always on the lookout for. And it is a new award that is a partnership between the National Book Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which should be familiar for anyone who listens to like Science Friday. They also support uh, things like that. Um, It is a new award that celebrates technology and the arts. Specifically, it gives $10,000 for books that are fiction or nonfiction that deepen the reader's understanding of science and technology. Okay. So this is the first year it's ever been given out, and there were three winners. Do you want to hear them? Yes, please share them. The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. Oh. What? Definitely took a turn there with the title. I was going to say that it sounded like a children's book. I was expecting it to be like, you know, some sort of like lightning bug situation, but I guess not. It was not. Okay. Um, The Radiant Lives of Animals. Cool. Which is a blend of poetry and prose, which really sounds like you all yes. over the place. Please. Um, so John and I are recording this episode on Valentine's Day um, because there's nothing we love more than literature. Uh, so this sounds like <laughs> a great Valentine's Day present for me, John. So I'll just put that on the airwaves and we'll follow back next week to see if I've received a book or anything <laughs> in the mail. Keep your eyes out, Stephanie. There might be something on its way to you. Perfect. Uh, The last one is called In the Field, a novel that was inspired by the life of Nobel-winning cytogeneticist Barbara McClintock. Cool. So, it seems like it runs the gamut, these three titles, but all of them have at least some element of literature and some element of science, and I'm really excited that... This is the first year for the award, and I hope that it's something that gains more prestige over time, and I hope we all are able to celebrate the intersection between these two very interrelated fields. That's very cool. Um, it's always exciting to see a new celebration of literature in some way, shape, or form. So I, yeah, in the future, who knows what kinds of work this will do. And so this actually also reminds me, um, for anyone who's interested or has an Instagram account, um, there's an account that I have recently found that I think is truly remarkable. It's a a person who's running it. It's called uh, At Crypto Nature, the Crypto Naturalist. And this person combines poetry with science. 
And it's a really extraordinary, um, these kind of short literary pieces that they share. Um, and I believe he's based out of Ohio, which is very cool. So um, there's a book that he wrote, a poetry collection called Field Guide to the Haunted Forest. Um, and he also hosts his own podcast. So this is, <laughs> I just was inspired by the things that John, you said, but for those of you who are interested in Instagram um, at all, you can go follow a podcast and Instagram or find some new poetry. So I would highly recommend uh, taking a look at that because I've, I've thought a lot more about his short, even just the short little poems um, than I've thought about any kind of poetry in a while. So definitely would recommend and kind of connects those threads of STEM and art and, and literature. Thank you, Stephanie. That's literally a perfect connection to this uh, news piece. I love a good crossover. And I'm really excited that we so often find things that connect on this podcast story to story. And um, so I hope people can also then connect with Jesse Redmond Facet stories this week. Uh, so I think without further ado, we'll go ahead and turn over to her uh, legacy and hopefully shed a little bit more light on a woman who absolutely deserves it. Jesse Redmond Fassett was born on April 27, 1882, in Camden County in New Jersey. This makes her a Taurus, of course, and per FamousBirthdays.com, she is the 16th most popular author born on April 27th, which, again, was one of those niche circumstances in which famous birthdays went real deep. It was a real deep cut. <laughs> um, but she was born on the same day as August Wilson and Mary Wollstonecraft, both of whom we featured on this podcast. Nice. So I thought that was pretty cool. And she's also the number ninth most popular tourist named Jesse. Again, nice and specific. Um, the first person on this list was Jesse Cave, who's an actress most famous for playing Lavender Brown in Harry Potter. So there was another literary connection for you. Tenuous, but I'll give it um, to you. Yeah, everyone else was kind of like, well, I just I didn't know who they sure. were. So her mother's name was Annie Seaman Fossett, and her father was Redmond Fossett, hence her name. And her father was an African Methodist Episcopal minister. And she had, I think, five other siblings, so six total. But her mother died when she was like a baby, very young. And just after this, her father got remarried um, to a woman named Bella Huff. And Bella Huff was a white Jewish woman. And their families got together. She had three kids from her marriage um, prior. She was a widower as well. This is like so a Brady they Bunch get plus kind of situation. It kind of is because then they had three kids together. So it seemed like there were at least 12 or 13 children in this family growing up, which seems chaotic. Yeah, raucous. <laughs> Yeah. So um, her father moves the family to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And despite the fact that there were a lot of children, they didn't have very much money. There was an incredibly high value placed on education. So her father and it seems like her stepmother were very passionate about providing her with educational opportunities. Stephanie, before you go on, is there any information about how these two met? No, there was very little information. Again, um, this woman's even the articles that I read kind of to provide the information from this, including uh, an article in The New Yorker, were citing and, and kind of discussing how no one talks about this woman. There isn't really like a fully fledged 
authorized biography. There isn't like a collection of her work. Um, And one of the quotes that I'll paraphrase here that I thought was kind of interesting from the New Yorker article was that people who study the Harlem Renaissance or African-American studies don't know who she is or hadn't heard of her. Not everyone, of course, um, but she is that kind of unknown where even in the in the fields of study in which she might be most frequently cited, um, she doesn't really have that powerful of a legacy. And there were a couple speculations on why that was, which I can get to at the end of this episode. Um, But really finding uh, information about her was much more difficult than some of the other authors that we have done in the past. Interesting. Well, thank you for the disclaimer. Sure. Um, so, you know, we'll do our best to, to give an introduction and, and listeners are more than encouraged to keep going in, in pursuit of this author. Um, so she attends the esteemed, very prestigious Philadelphia High School for Girls and um, was likely the only African-American student in the class. Wow. She had dreams of going on to Bryn Mawr College, which was a also a very prestigious women's school, but um, they turned her away because she was black uh, and instead encouraged her and helped her, which I thought was kind of interesting, get a scholarship to attend Cornell. So she goes to Cornell University on a scholarship, which is very exciting because also, you know, very important institution. Definitely, but still weird. Yeah, definitely has the, has, a, has a sort of strange she had a strange path to get there. Right. Like also the fact that Cornell was like, sure. I don't know the history of Bryn Mawr, but I'm surprised that like it wouldn't be more accepting considering it was a woman's college. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can tie this. We've kind of been living in the same time period for the last several episodes, incidentally enough, like the late 1800s to the early 1900s, 1920 or so. Um, and a little bit beyond, but it it definitely seems like this sort of alignment of <laughs> women's rights versus black rights and how how do we, you know, the people who are picking and choosing which fight they're going to be on, um, I think made this a, a pretty difficult time as people tried to figure out their place in society as it was changing. So do we, can we ally all these rights and make this an intersectional movement? Uh, which obviously we would say today, absolutely. Um, but back then, that was a big conversation that they were having. And Bryn Mawr says no. Yeah. Um, so Bryn Mawr would have been with the uh, Susan B. Anthony's, I think. Right. <laughs> so she does very well at Cornell. She's an amazing student, and she was selected to join Phi Beta Kappa, a very uh, elite academic fraternity. She graduates in 1905, um, but unfortunately, her race and her gender prevent her from being hired as a teacher in Philadelphia. So she was regaled to teaching at segregated schools in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and she teaches Latin and French for one year at Douglas High School in Baltimore. And um, her studies in college were all classical, which I think is kind of cool. So she studied Greek and Latin and French and other languages. um, And that was sort of her area of of interest. It's sort of an anachronism today, even almost at that time, too. Mm -hmm. I, I would guess that scholarship was probably that was still a a viable (laughs) a viable thing to study if you were going into the academic field sure um but i would definitely agree with you about today 
So um, she then goes and teaches until 1919, so for about 14 years, um, at Dunbar High School. And this is the one in Washington, D.C. And while she's there, she also works on an M.A. in French from the University of Pennsylvania. So she's not only teaching full time, but she's also getting another master's degree um, at, at, a, at a university. And she goes during the summers to Paris and she studies at the Sorbonne in France. Good for her. Um, which, again, a very elite educational institution. And another author of color that is going to France to study. I think that's interesting. It seems it really was a a second home to the Harlem Renaissance writers, Stephanie. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of French connections here um, in these last couple episodes. It it might be interesting. And I think you and I have toyed around with this idea of creating playlists of kind of organizing our authors in different ways. We have our alphabet, which is great. And we have our chronology, which is fine. Um, but it might be kind of cool to, to group our authors in these in these different places. And I think Harlem Renaissance would definitely be one of our our categories. So while she's teaching, she also starts to submit reviews and essays and various poems and short stories to The Crisis, which is W.E.B. Du Bois' publication. So while he's writing, he's one of the co-founders, he edits, um, he convinces her to become the publication's literary editor, which is very cool. And so this is actually why she leaves teaching in 1919. She moves up to Harlem um, to live with her sister and she really starts to get involved with the Harlem Renaissance and the movement. Um, during this time, she's writing, she's editing, but she's also lecturing and traveling around both the United States and overseas to make those lectures happen. So as the editor, she helps to foster and encourage the careers of a number of writers that are iconic, I think, if we think about the the Harlem Renaissance, we're thinking about Langston Hughes, we're thinking about Claude McKay, and she is the one who's fostering their writing. And um, Langston Hughes will go on to kind of credit and cite her later on in his career as a, as an inspiration and a, a driving force behind a lot of his work. And so I think it's also sort of interesting to put this then in context with why her legacy isn't as well known. Um, she's also writing during this time, too. And uh, why don't we pay attention to her work as much as we do the others? So she does continue to write her own work. And then she also serves as a co-editor for the Brownies book, um, which was a monthly publication between 1920 and 1921, which was designed to teach African-American children about their heritage which I think is very cool. So it was a children's publication. Um, and I would, I would just absolutely love to get, to get a chance to see a copy of um, the Brownies book. So if anyone has connections, please let me know. I would love to see those because I think um, what a fascinating and important way of fusing her education career with her editing work. I think that's awesome. Definitely. You got to check the Newberry archives, Stephanie. Yeah, I'll have to go back in there and see see what we have. Um, so she obviously reads a lot. She's an editor, and that's part of her work. And she was inspired, actually, to write a novel. So she'd never written a novel before uh, this that I, I found. Um, lots of short stories and, and shorter pieces. But she reads a very inaccurate portrayal of African Americans in a book penned by a white author. And so she decides that she needs to correct this, um, as she should. Yes. So... She publishes the novel called There Is Confusion. 
Canyon, which I like that title so much. Also, if I had to put a name on this current period of history, I think that's what I would choose. <laughs> yes, there is confusion. <laughs> the years from 2016 to present yes. day. Um, so this published in 1994. Oh, sorry. So this is published in 1924, and it features African-American characters, but in a middle-class setting. And so this was a, a very unusual go. People aren't really reading books that are centered around African-American life, um, especially in, you know, non-Harlem Renaissance places. And so lots of people critique this work as overly sentimental or Victorian, it seems to kind of reflect the the things that we might see from other female authors who were white during this time period anyhow and before in the 1890s. Um, but it centers on a marriage plot. So again, kind of very interesting that that's the first critique or those are the critiques that are coming out. She then writes an essay called The Gift of Laughter. And this analyzes how American theater and American drama uses black characters in roles as comics, which for me sounds completely fascinating um, to be analyzing what I would imagine, you know, we're still having minstrel shows at this point, and those are still a popular form of entertainment. Uh, So I would be very interested to read that essay as well. Definitely. I'd also be interested, just is the title sincere or... Uh, ironic it'd be interesting to 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 read the essay and find out yes well when i do i will let you know and follow up so Fossette leaves her position on the crisis uh, as the editor in 1926 and it was said that she left on bad terms so there seemed to be an implication that she and Du Bois had some kind of relationship that didn't go well but it seemed like she chalked up the reason for leaving was really because she didn't agree with the way that the publication was going so um the crisis gives out literary awards and Du Bois thought the awards were being misused and he wanted them to focus on business and finance and that sort of thing. And Fawcett, as a result, saw her role as a literary editor to be kind of obsolete if they were changing the way that they were framing things. So ultimately, she winds up leaving and um, she starts to look for a different work in publishing. But... Um, she was really struggling to find work. She even, she offered at one point to work at her own house so she wouldn't have to go into an office and deal with segregation and the issues of her being black in that world. And so ultimately she winds up returning to teaching because she can't find a job in the publishing industry there. That's, a, that's criminal. Yes. So she continues to teach uh, French at DeWitt Clinton High School from 1927 to 1944, and she writes and publishes her own work independently. Um, in 1929, she marries a businessman and a World War I veteran named Herbert Harris. And um, they also have kind of an interesting relationship. They don't have children because she was quite old um, when they got married. So, you know, good for her. And um, after they got married, she starts to become more prolific in her novels. So she writes a novel called Plum Bun in 1929. And this novel focuses on a mixed race character named Angela Murray. And I think that that is very interesting, knowing her history uh, with her family growing up. 
And um, Angela apparently, you know, is in functioning in this upper middle class world and she wants to become a famous painter. So she moves to New York City and passes as white. Um, so this was very interesting because I just finished reading a book called The Personal Librarian um, about J.P. Morgan Chase's personal librarian who was a black woman who passed as white. Wow. It's a really um, fabulously done. It was on like Oprah's book list, you know, so it's not like I've discovered this this little known text. Um, but I would highly recommend finding out more about this extraordinary figure. I'm trying to figure out a way we can talk about her on the podcast, maybe a little bit more than I am right now. Um, um, but by from my understanding, she didn't actually write. She was this librarian. So would definitely recommend the personal librarian. Um, but anyway, those were the themes of her uh, text that, there. In 1931, she publishes another book called The Chinaberry Tree. And this deals with class. So you can kind of see where a lot of the themes in her work are going. You're getting female protagonists that are dealing and struggling in society with race, with class, with gender. Um, so a lot of the issues that she faces personally wind up appearing later in her work. And there's a taste here of Bell Hooks's intersectionality, right? She's leaning into characters who identify across multiple spectrums. Yes, that's an excellent connection. Uh, intersectionality before we had the term. Right. Um, in 1933, she publishes a text called Comedy, American Style. And this is also very interesting because it tackles colorism within the Black community. So the concept of colorism is a system or hierarchy kind of of light versus darker-skinned African-Americans, uh, which is still an incredibly important conversation being had today in terms of, of value and um, perspective and representation in the African-American community. Um, this also came up with In the Heights, actually, I think is maybe the most um, or the biggest story that I've heard recently, um, in which a lot of that cast was very light-skinned, which are obviously representations of African-American people. Um, but the communities from the area kind of condemned that and, and said that there should have been more darker-skinned representation. So this is a conversation that is ongoing and one that, that definitely has a huge impact on the way that Black people are able to see themselves reflected in our current media. I think it would be really interesting to sort of see how her um, take on this issue that is obviously still incredibly important in black culture today uh, reflects and how we might put it in conversation with what is ongoing. So um, if you're interested, that's comedy American style um, to take a look at. These last two novels that she wrote, The Chinaberry Tree and Comedy, um, are less successful than the first two. The first two um, receive quite a bit of critical praise. And um, after this point in time, her output as, a, as an author starts to kind of taper off. She turns back to teaching um, and kind of focuses on that element and area of her life. In 1949, she serves briefly as a visiting professor at Hampton Institute and then also teaches at the Tuskegee Institute, which are both um, institutions of higher learning, specifically catering uh, to African-Americans, which I think, you know, based on the discrimination that she faced, hopefully this was a space where she felt empowered and encouraged um, to be the amazing educator that she was. She and her husband, Herbert, lived together in New Jersey until he dies in 1958. So for a long time, just right over the, the river. 
And uh, when he dies, she actually moves in with uh, some family in Philadelphia. And it's there that she lives for just another three years, actually. And she dies in Philadelphia on April 30th, 1961, at the age of 79. Um, She's buried in Eden Cemetery, which is in Collingdale, Pennsylvania. So if you're interested in going to find or track down her grave, you can. Um, but this is a, a short introduction, I think, to the life and legacy of Jesse Redmond Fawcett, who, as I mentioned, literally <laughs> throughout the course of this episode, um, should have a lot more emphasis, I think, placed on her work, not only for her own authorship and the work that she did as a, as a writer, um, but also for everything she did to encourage the Harlem Renaissance and um, giving voice and opportunity and light to these authors that we consider, you know, behemoths of their time uh hopefully we can get her a place right up along there with them i completely agree stephanie i think it sounds like she served as an early curator and made a lasting legacy in claude mckay's life and obviously the close relationship uh professional relationship with w.e.b du bois um lands her among the heart of the people in the harlem renaissance and the fact that she was dedicating her life to such a noble profession as teaching uh, in the uh, aftermath of uh, not being able to find publishing work. I I think that that says something more selfless about her than even some of the other authors that we've talked about. Yes, and that was actually one of the citations in the articles that I was reading. Um, One scholar speculated that the reason that she hadn't gotten as much attention was because she was so selfless and she spent so much time focusing on getting attention for other authors that she wasn't able to get as much herself. So even someone like Zora Neale Hurston, who, again, incredibly important author at the time, um, she wasn't really up there with them, despite the fact that she was running in those same circles at the same time, doing the same things um, and publishing work that had a deep impact on the community up there. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not I'm not really sure what to make of that, but I thought that was an interesting speculation. Definitely. Feel free, listeners, go check out Jesse Redmond Fossett's work. Tell people about her. Spread the word. Spread the news. Um, we're right in the middle of Black History Month, and I think it's incredibly important to keep um, putting out new opportunities for people to pursue Black literature. So feel free to spread the word that you know um, about her and look her up herself. There's a lot of really wonderful pictures of her kind of in this like very 1920s flapper attire. She's in all of these really fabulous clothes, and, and there's some really beautiful pictures. So I would definitely recommend Googling her Um, if you haven't, and check out her work while you're at it too. So um, until next week, we hope all of you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Maybe you did something like read a book of love poetry. Um, I had my students today in creative writing write um, love poems, and I got a really fabulous love poem to ramen, um, for example, (laughs) in the class. So um, I hope you're able to do something. There's lots of literary adjacent things you can do to celebrate Valentine's Day, um, including also celebrating Frederick Douglass, whose birthday uh, was on Valentine's Day or is celebrated on Valentine's Day. So Until we see and hear from you next time, thank you so much for your support of this podcast, and thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one.